In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Our guest today started her path to the wedding aisle with a great book about how to develop prenuptial agreements. The book described blissful ways for the prenup to be a foundational pillar to the marriage. Unfortunately, the book was no match for the family attorney who was very focused on protecting her soon-to-be husband's family resources. Welcome to Money Tales. This is Sandy, and today Cami and I have a conversation with Dr. Lindsay Hardy. Hey, Cami here. Lindsay is a clinical psychologist and legacy coach. She grew up middle class and married into the third generation of a very wealthy family. She shares this important story and many others during the course of our conversation. We invite you to stick around after the interview to hear our financial insight about premarital financial conversations and agreements. But for now, let's go to the interview. Dr. Lindsay Hardy, welcome to Money Tales. We're so glad that you're here with us. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. To get the conversation started, please tell us a little bit about your life focusing on two or three pivotal moments that really make you the person that you are today speaking with us. So I think I want to go back just a little over 20 years ago, and that was right when I graduated from college, and my mom had been sick with colon cancer, and she died just three weeks after attending my college graduation. And so my experience of that was realizing that I really didn't know how to be with grief and with feelings. And so I actually turned to both therapy and meditation, and those two things were extremely helpful and then ended up being what I chose for my career after some twists and turns. (laughs) What else about that? That's big stuff. I actually, after graduating from college, I started a graduate program in neuroscience at UCSF and really struggled because it didn't feel like it was quite the right fit with my values and with my strengths. And so I went through a period of soul searching and changed directions and then ended up pursuing a career in clinical psychology. And it was really fortunate for me because right at that time, mindfulness and behavioral therapy were coming together in the mainstream. And so I was able to study mindfulness-based therapy in graduate school for clinical psychology. That's great. Can we go back to your childhood though, where we all began and maybe even just start with, you know, let's do some soft conversation around how you and your family talked about money if you talked about sure. Yeah. So I grew up in Palo Alto and we were middle class, I would say. The dynamic that we had in my family around money was that my mom was more of a saver and my parents thought fairly frequently about money. And if I wanted something, I would go to my dad. <laughs> Why was that? 
because he would probably give it to me. He was more of a spender than my mom was. So that's where they differed. I think this created a, I guess what you could call a money script for me around wanting things. But when I got them, I was kind of stuck in the middle of my parents' argument about it. So feeling guilty about money and feeling guilty about the things that I wanted as a kid. Did you talk to your parents about that? No, I don't think we ever talked about that. Did it cause you to change your behavior over time? I haven't thought about it really before. So I'm, I mean, I've thought about how it shows up in my life now, I think in terms of just having that inner conflict, but I'm also very aware of it. And so I think with spending, when I'm doing that responsibly, just sort of being able to recognize the guilt, but not necessarily having that be a big part of my experience. But I'm having trouble pinpointing like how it would actually directly impact a specific behavior. I'm curious, Lindsay, about your awareness of these things. Is that because of your training? Or was there something happening when you were younger that kind of tapped you into becoming more aware of, oh, I asked dad, he says yes, and then I feel really guilty. Right. Oh, I just have this really clear memory of wanting these Reebok high tops that were, I just thought were like the coolest thing. I think they were black. And my mom just hated them. She was, I think it was mostly that she thought they were really ugly more than anything else because they probably weren't that expensive. But still, we didn't have a lot of like surplus income as a kid. So, I mean, everything really did make a difference. So I remember my dad buying me those high tops and then it caused a huge argument. And I actually don't remember if I kept them. It's funny because I don't remember like if I kept them and wore them or if we took them back or what the outcome was. But I definitely remember the argument. And what was the environment like in Palo Alto at that time? I don't know how different it is now, but I would say at that time it was, there was certainly a lot of wealth and at the same time, a culture of not showing off, being very casual. So, I mean, I think, you know, the coolest thing was just to wear jeans and a t-shirt and flip-flop. There were the kids that had cars and the, the kids that maybe didn't have cars, but I don't remember like a lot of flashiness or showiness. And I remember having, getting some messages even from my friends that you don't really talk about. If you have something expensive or something nice, like you don't really talk about that or take too much pride in that. <laughs> Do you remember your first big purchase? My first big purchase? Well, I think I would, the one that's coming to mind, I would fast forward quite a bit. So this would be a really nice purse that I bought for myself, but it was sort of a gift, actually. This was after I was married and several of us, actually three of us in-laws, went to a program at the University of Chicago Booth School called Private Wealth Management. And this is something that the family paid for everyone to go to. And on that trip, my in-laws gave each of us some spending money. And so I went and bought my first designer purse. And it was kind of funny because I went from not even really having a purse, like I never liked purses <laughs> particularly. So I might have a backpack or something, or I might have, you know, just something very basic to this designer handbag. And oh my gosh, that kept me up at night. <laughs> and I didn't even actually, in that case, it wasn't even really my own money, but it still was really stressful, but I still have it and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and tell us why it was so stressful for you. Oh, just the idea of spending that much money on a handbag was just a huge leap from how I spent money before that. Maybe you can fill us in from how you got to graduating college and going off to grad school, finding your purpose around your study in your career. 
to having in-laws who are making generous gifts, allowing you to <laughs> yeah, I, I, make big purchases. Yeah, I kind of skipped, skipped that part. So when I was in graduate school for psychology, I met my husband. We actually met on eHarmony and <laughs> I was living in Reno for graduate school and then he was living in South Lake. We hit it off right away. And then as we were dating, he shared with me that he personally had enough wealth to not have to work for money, which was pretty different from what I was used to. What part of the relationship did that reveal occur? Was it pretty early on or? Yeah, it was fairly early on. It's funny because like when I think back to the beginning of our relationship, it's like things happened fast, but it felt slow at the time. <laughs> like we were intentionally slow about things because he actually was recently divorced and I was really trying to do my relationships differently. And so we were purposefully not just jumping in too quickly, but it was only a few months in that he revealed this. And what was your reaction? I think my first reaction was to be a little bit put off. Well, maybe that's not completely true. I think it was a mixture of both. I think that parallel to upbringing, like wealth is not necessarily considered a good thing, even though a lot of people have it. So I think reacting to some of my own stigma about wealth. And then on the other hand, I thought, wow, that's actually a pretty powerful thing to have enough wealth that you don't have to work. That's a really, obviously very life-changing. In a good way or a bad way? Oh, good question. (laughs) I guess the way I'm talking about it, you know, the reaction I had, it was in a good way. Like it felt just the word is powerful that Mm. comes to mind. It's like a powerful to be able to have those choices. And I know this was many years ago now, but as you look back upon it and you think about the way he told you, how would you rate his delivery? What was it that he said? Because I think this is a really hard point for people of wealth to talk about it and to bring it up. And, And there's always a lot of questions about you know, when do we reveal this information? Mm-hmm. How do I know that it's a safe and trusting environment to be able to do it? What words do I say? Yeah, I, he was really conscious about it. I think I'd give him a pretty good rating because <laughs> our, our whole relationship was really based on having very forthright communication. And so really like in that spirit, he was sharing with me about his situation yeah, I think it was actually just also as we were becoming more committed that he shared this, if I remember the timeline right. <laughs> but I, I think he was pretty uncomfortable. How'd that connect you during your relationship? Did it draw you closer? Was there a, you know, by him bringing this up and sharing something that could be vulnerable, how'd that impact you both? I think it sort of worked in two ways, like on the one hand, he was sharing something vulnerable. And that was, you know, it was an important fact about him that he wanted me to know about not too early, but not too late. But then I also had my own reaction, you know, again, like that was, I think, around stigma about wealth. And I think really wondering, is this a good thing? Mm -hmm. And having to work through my feelings about wealth and some of my aversion about wealth, and ideas about what wealthy people are like, and things like that. And did you both have more conversations? Is it just now a dialogue that you're, you're talking about what this means to you both? I think there were conversations that were sort of happened over time, like about understanding his family wealth and how that began about three generations before him. So understanding that piece and about the family business, and which is really just him sharing with me about his family. 
as you're starting to get more comfortable with the fact that you're seriously dating someone who comes from a wealthy family and, and you're kind of working through your own thoughts and feelings about it, how does the relationship mature to the point where you ultimately get married? Right. Yeah. And I think just I was able to work through that with some friends that were really helpful and just allowing me to talk about it and, you know, not judging and holding that space. And then a really wonderful supervisor who was so curious about my experience. And she even said I should write about it. And that just made me feel like this is something that's, you know, worth my attention. (laughs) So I was able to kind of do that work. And then we were together a little over two years. So we moved in together. So I think that was a big step. He bought a condo. I helped him look for a place and then we moved in together. But I remember the day I moved in, realizing that I had just given away all of my furniture because I actually owned a house with my parents that we bought for me to live in during grad school. And all of the furniture I had in the house were hand-me-downs. It's not too easy to replace. And I didn't like have money to replace, to buy furniture. If the relationship didn't work. Yeah, right. yeah. So that was really scary. Really, like, I guess I just hadn't quite realized what a big commitment it was until it was actually there. Now I always tell clients and I guess friends too, like if you're, that's kind of a place to start thinking about something like a prenup. Like what happens if, if this doesn't work out? Like, are you going to help me buy back some furniture? Well, obviously the relationship was a success. Talk, <laughs> yeah. talk to us about getting married. What happened with respect to the, the wealth conversations? Oh, there's so much. Okay, so we had a prenup, which was really a requirement by his family, but that was never a problem for me. I was completely on board with that. I understood the reasoning for it. And I don't remember who recommended this book, but there's a really great book called Prenups for Lovers. So we read that book and it paints a very rosy picture of what a prenup process can be like. <laughs> And the author of the book actually talks about how they keep their prenup right there on the coffee table. It's like a very treasured item in their house (laughs) and how it really lends to a healthy relationship. It's not about just like what happens if you break up. It's about how you are coming together. So I just loved the spirit of that. And then uh, our experience of the prenup was so different from that. So my husband had a lawyer that was a family lawyer. I just think of him as being a shark his main interest was in protecting as much as my, of my husband's wealth as possible. And so it was the most sort of one-sided document that you could picture. That was our starting point. And then he referred me to a lawyer that was basically someone he knew would just sign off on it. So, so I met with that person, which actually I think, I think that would have made it not even legal if he is referring, I don't know that's for sure, but that's my understanding so I met with this guy in this like really dingy office. I mean, this was like one of the, this must have been the most like low rent lawyers in town. And I just thought, no way. <laughs> this is not, this is, I'm not signing up for this. So I found my own lawyer, a woman who was pretty feisty and willing to could stand up to this guy who was really a challenging person to, to work with. How did you find her? In my experience, it's not uncommon for one attorney to refer the other party to the marriage to a a different attorney. I don't think it's done out of malice or control. I I think it's just that many people don't know how to go about finding a solid family attorney to help guide them. Yeah. I mean, in this case, I do think it was to 
just had someone sign off, but I could see how, yeah, I mean, how would anyone know how to find a prenup lawyer if you didn't have any experience with that? So I don't remember. I think it was just maybe my supervisor or a friend. Probably I was still in grad school at the time. So, you know, maybe a professor in my program because, you know, they would be the most likely to know someone or it could have been from the same lawyer. It's possible. He just gave me a few more referrals, give him some credit. But I was really aware that an agreement that I had made with my husband early on, he had said that he had no intentions of leaving Tahoe. Actually, we both spent quite a lot of time growing up, but he'd, he'd spent a lot of time and he really wanted to stay in the area. And my plans had been to move back to the Bay Area where I'm from. So I agreed to stay in Tahoe, but that meant that I was really giving up my, the career trajectory that I had envisioned for myself. And I also knew we were going to, we were planning to have kids soon and, you know, I, I would have the option to take some time off. And so I just was aware that I was giving up some of my earning potential. So it was important that be considered in the process. In the prenup? As far as the prenup process, though, I mean, he was pretty passive about it, which was frustrating at the time because I, again, I had this vision of how this was going to go. It was going to be this very collaborative, beautiful <laughs> process and it ended up being more like our lawyers fighting with each other. But it was funny because we insisted, finally, probably I insisted that we just all get together and have the four of us in the same room. And as soon as we did that, both lawyers ended up agreeing to things that they had sworn they would not agree to. So it turned out, it turned out okay. Good for you. That's interesting. Has the agreement helped you and your husband in your married life? Because within a premarital agreement, in addition to determining what happens if the marriage ends, there's oftentimes discussion about how family finances will be handled. And I think those can help people. Yeah, I think, you know, like our prenup has evolved into a sort of different arrangement based on subsequent estate planning. So the prenup isn't really relevant anymore. And I would say in the same way, we started off in terms of our finances were, we had combined finances and separate finances. And in the beginning, we had the income that we, the passive income from the family, which is what is now an investment business. But then we also had each of our income. And so we would both contribute to the shared pot. And how it's evolved over time is that now my husband's more encouraging of me creating my own, you know, that any money I make is more for myself. So it's evolved over time. I think it kind of felt right in the beginning to have each of us contribute. And now it feels right to do something a little different. And that's just sort of naturally as as you guys have grown together and your relationship and your lives have evolved and unfolded. Yeah. I mean, I think there's even once you're married, there's the process of building trust and seeing how you are together in terms of finances. We're really partners. And even though he's the one that manages the money for the most part, he's the one who's more directly involved with the business. It doesn't feel like he's controlling anything by being in charge of that. We make choices together for our family and we're mostly on the same page with that, which is nice. I think we have similar spending and saving tendencies. So that helps. (laughs) So you have the premarital agreement in place, you get married. Does that agreement and the family's request that you have that agreement in place change or impact? Impact your relationship with your husband's parents in particular or the rest of the family? 
Mm. Those early days, especially. Yeah. And I think that's one of the risks of me being a little more proactive with the prenup process is that there can be a worry about how the in-laws will react to that. But really, and I checked this out with my husband recently, they were just happy that we got it done. (laughs) So I think that was all they cared about. Are these the in-laws that you went off to Booth to go to a private wealth management course? Tell us about that. Yeah. So, well, I would just say that's part of the way that they've, I think they've been really great about embracing the in-laws and including them in family meetings in an appropriate way. And probably part of the reason I feel that, you know, money is not a big issue in my relationship with my husband is because I'm involved. I think if I were completely shut out of that, it would be a lot more challenging because I would just feel it would just be this huge unknown. Like I didn't, (laughs) this this thing I didn't understand. And that's not the case. I've learned so much, partly because of the Booth School program that I went to, and then just learning from attending the board meetings and being allowed to participate in those conversations and have a voice. That's really important. And tell us how that inclusion started, Lindsay, because I think this is really interesting because it's really been changing your life, right? <laughs> you marry right. a man who you love, he's third generation wealth, there's a family business, there's all this infrastructure. What was it like to, to get exposed to that? And how is it done in a way so that, you know, many years later, 10 years later, you're feeling really great about it? Yeah, I think they were really thoughtful about how to include new people coming into the family. And the family's worked with consultants for many, many years. And then one consultant for the past, I think, seven or eight years. So they were thoughtful about inviting us to the, I mean, we were invited right away to the board meeting. And yeah, it was a big adjustment. I mean, it's a totally different world and I guess really culture from what I was used to. I think in some ways there might have been a little more hesitancy at the beginning with his family, but it was complicated because he'd been married before. But I think wealth complicates, you know, wealth plays into that too. Like he'd been married before, he'd had a prenup before, his ex-wife got a nice settlement. So now there's this new person, you know, how is this going to play out? How do we know we can trust you? Because it's, I think it's so different when it's, you're not just marrying that person, you're marrying, the, as they say, in family business. You marry the family, not just the person you're marrying. It, it, it felt like that. Yeah. And what did all this teach you about money? And specifically, Lindsay, your relationship to money outside of the family, with people in your life outside of, of your husband's family? Well, tell me that a lot of people are very uncomfortable with money and very uncomfortable talking about wealth. I mean, I, as I mentioned before, I had the friends and a supervisor that I could talk to, but I, there were other people that would really shut down any type of conversation like that. It was too uncomfortable. And I think it had much more to do with them than me, but it's such a taboo subject. And to even acknowledge that you have wealth is very uncomfortable. It's, it's, I think that what people associate with wealth is like a lot of flashiness and showing off and things like that. But in my experience, I think most people with wealth tend to be on the other end of the spectrum. And this is just my experience. I don't know what data would show, but in terms of being more private and um, maybe even a little bit embarrassed, maybe not sharing with friends. So yeah, I mean, for me, I've integrated this into my work. So it's something I'm really passionate about. So I try to really practice it myself, which is how to not disown this part of myself, how to embrace it actually and, and have gratitude and use money in ways that creates a lot of joy. Will you tell us how you do that in your own life? 
Yeah. I say joy and meaning. I mean, the joy comes from having like the meaning I think that you can create with it. I think it really has to do with like being able to share experiences with other people. Like we have a chef that cooks for us a couple times a week and we recently had friends over for dinner and the chef cooked this beautiful meal. And especially I think with COVID to be able to share a really beautiful meal and not have to be in the kitchen and just sort of be able to relax and enjoy them felt really special. We also went on a vacation this year with my parents and we were able to, I mean, even now I'm like, it's a little hard to (laughs) acknowledge some of the choices we made, but we flew private. And again, it was really, I was so happy to be able to do that because we were able to travel safely and give my parents this experience they wouldn't have otherwise. I mean, it was new for us too. And then spend some really nice time with my brother's family as well. I think it can enable experiences that you might not have otherwise. And if you can do that with people you love, that's what brings me joy. And then I think also sometimes it's not even just sharing experiences. It's just giving in a way that you know it really makes a difference for someone. How have you been able to transcend sharing and keeping it very comfortable that people don't feel that it's flash or expect say they have set expectations that this will continue? Do you talk about it with your brother and your family or do you just let it happen organically? I think we more let it happen organically, but it's always on my mind. Like I want to make sure that it doesn't become an obstacle in our relationship. I think we just try to be really thoughtful. And I use my husband as a compass too. I think he's really good about having an idea of what's appropriate. Whereas I might go like, <laughs> if we're sharing like, how much do you think we should get? Let's say we're making a donation. How much should we give? I might say one number, he might be half. And I'm I'm usually like, okay, let's do half because we can always give more later, right? Not to make it sound like he's not generous. That's not what I mean at all. But, you know, I I trust his judgment on those things. It's a great partnership. Yeah, yeah. Do you have kids? So we have two kids. They're five and eight. How are we bringing money into that? You know, they're young, but are you bringing money into the conversations you're having with your kids or maybe not even conversations, behaviors? So funny. So my son recently started talking about money and he has these ideas. He says, money can ruin people. (laughs) And he's the eight-year-old and he'll say, you know, just, he was very down on money. It was not a good thing. But he also didn't think he was talking about his friends and how his friends' parents are rich. And he said, but he said, but they're really nice people. They're really generous. They give a lot of money. So it's okay for them to have money because of that. (laughs) But they're clearly in some other category, which is interesting to hear his perceptions. And clearly, like, they're having conversations about this at school. My husband's been really focused on how to bring money into parenting. And so he's also creating a money mentorship program for the next generation. So for our kids and our nephew, and we have some nieces who are older who will be invited as well, but they will be adults actually. What is that? A money mentorship program? Yeah. So the idea being, well, he, I wish he he could tell you, but I think the idea is that there will be, yeah, actually I know that there will be mentors. So people you can talk to about money that are not your parents. So like it might be like an executive in our family business would be a good person. Yeah, that our kids could go talk to about money, but also that they're learning skills around money. And then I'm sure there'll be a component of it around philanthropy, learning about giving money. So, so far, I mean, we've started with allowance at age six and the allowance, we use the save, share, spend model. So um, 
You know, out of curiosity, how's that working for you? Are, are you guys pretty dedicated to it? Well, my husband's, I'm really glad he's good at keeping track of it because, well, I guess I don't have to. So <laughs> I'm really glad he's so consistent about it. And my experience growing up, we had allowance, but it was so inconsistent. So it wasn't really like a reliable source of money. So I just always was dependent on my parents and always wanted to be more independent, but just never quite get them to, <laughs> just didn't work out that way. So, <laughs> so I'm glad we're doing this for our kids because I think they're going to have much better training than I did. But it's scary though. You don't really know what they're going to learn or what they're going to take from different experiences. And I don't know, from what I've seen, the most important thing is to pass on your values. And we, you know, I think we focus a lot on, on giving back and on sharing and, and also like a, enjoying it. I think in being able to enjoy it is also really important. And I think that's not valued enough. Mm-hmm. If you don't enjoy it, then you usually, the alternative is to feel guilty about it. And I don't think that's necessarily helpful. Lindsay, can we go back to values for a moment? Because we also think that that's a really great starting place for people to make decisions about money and really be able to help identify the purpose of money in their lives. So when you and your husband think about your own values and your family values, have you articulated those in any sort of formal way? And and how do you talk with your children about values? So we haven't articulated it in a formal way. We've done lots of like, exercises with consultants. Many have in family business. So we've sort of done personal values exercises. We did a really nice exercise around sort of money values as a couple. And I said earlier, we have similar habits around saving and spending. And we were, that showed how aligned we were, like we picked the same cards. So that was helpful. Although I think the most important thing is just to know, just to know what, if you're aligned or what your differences are. But values, so values around Yeah, I mean, it would be nice to articulate them in a more formal way. But again, I think we're so aligned that it doesn't always feel that necessary. And so I would say we express our values, certainly through giving back in our local community. I'm actually taking a course right now where I want to dig into that deeper and think more thoughtfully about how to be strategic there rather than just giving to the same five organizations that I love, but how to make a bigger difference with that. I mean, my work is really focused on helping people. And I talk to my kids about that. Like that's what I do when I go to work is I help people. My son thinks I go to work and I meditate, which is sort of true. (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit about your work? Yeah, sure. So actually now I have two businesses. I have a private practice doing therapy in Incline Village where I live. And then I just started a second business. It's called Sierra Legacy Consulting. That business is more focused on helping other people with their relationship with money. And I would say it's partly born out of my experience coming into wealth. And I think I did have people around me that helped me with that process. But if I had had a coach who would help me with that, I think that would have been so valuable. So if I can be that for other people, whether it's for someone who's marrying into a family or a couple who's struggling with money issues or just trying to understand how to navigate wealth in their relationship or for a family like that feels very meaningful to me having lived it and also not lived it. (laughs) Lindsay, I think oftentimes people don't have a good appreciation for the difference between therapy and coaching. Mm. So could you maybe just spend a moment to distinguish the difference? Sure. So therapy traditionally is focused on like a psychological disorder. Therapy can be 
helping someone with depression or anxiety. Although I will say in my practice, that's maybe like a quarter to a third of my practice. I mean, a lot of people come to therapy because of relationship issues or kind of a sense of unease or, you know, that things could be better for them. That's where therapy starts to kind of overlap with coaching. I'm fortunate that the therapy model that I was trained in, which is called acceptance and commitment therapy, really lends itself to coaching. I'm just realizing that more and more. So I'm able to use that. It's called ACT for short. And with ACT, there's a spirit of collaboration with the client rather than being an expert where you're just sort of sharing your expertise. It's a very collaborative and also a very experiential approach. Then with coaching, though, it tends to be a bit more goal-oriented. And I'm hesitating because my therapy is also fairly goal-oriented. But when I say goal-oriented, goals are things like increasing self-compassion, clarifying values, and living in a way that's more aligned with those values. So they are goals, but they're very process-focused. And it's not too different. In coaching, I think the language is a bit different because it's more focused on strengths, and then how to relate to obstacles so they're not interfering with living your values in a way that's really expanding your life. And you mentioned you are bringing into your practice conversations about money. How are you doing that? Yeah. And so that's actually in both of my practices, but not with every therapy client, but it certainly comes up. And because of my interest in this topic, it's something I'm always sort of listening for. So ways it comes up, I mean, in my coaching practice, those are people who are probably seeking me out because they have wealth and that's something that they're struggling a bit to navigate. It could be about feeling embarrassed about the wealth they have, maybe feeling not like not deserving of money. And interesting, I kind of had this idea that the people who felt undeserving of their wealth were those who inherited it or married into it, you know, but didn't earn it themselves. But I, I spoke with someone recently who earned it and also felt like this was just sort of luck because this person just happened to work at a business that was part of an IPO. And so that was really eye-opening to me. Like this is actually, you know, even if you earn it, you can feel like you're not worthy of it. (laughs) I think especially as women. And I would say I'm getting more interested also in how like women in particular relate to money and wealth, because I think it's quite different in our society treats women so differently it's so much more important for women to be modest about it. And or if they share it, it's probably in a more, well, I don't know, maybe it's in a more materialistic way. That's kind of the stereotype anyway. This is all fascinating things. We could have a whole nother podcast conversation about some gender differences with money. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe we'll do that down the road. (laughs) Lindsay, will you describe for us your current relationship with money? I would say I enjoy it more and more. I enjoy the experiences it allows us to have as a family. I feel a lot of gratitude. Like I I hope I don't take it for granted. I think it's really loaded in this current climate that we're in. There's such a huge inequity in our society. And so I'm very aware of that as well. But I think it's important not to be caught in guilt because then I don't think you can be as powerful with your money if you're really stuck in a guilty place. So I, I, I think it's much more important to focus on how to create meaning and how to create change. And I don't think it always has to be really lofty either. Like, I think it's very easy to get overwhelmed then. Like, oh, I, have, I, like, I don't know what to, you know, there's so many ways to try to make a difference. So I think, you know, creating meaning just on even on a daily basis in, in small ways and in big ways, if that's, that's available or if that's a calling. 
It's a really good point. I was in a conversation recently where someone was asked by the 13-year-old, what are you doing to change the world? Mm. Because that's this new, so it's, it's big, it's huge. And instead of like the incremental changes are really powerful, butterfly effect. Yeah, and there's a really beautiful poem called Clearing. to look up who it's by, but it speaks to this idea that all you have to do is create a clearing and then step into it. And it doesn't have to be this overwhelming. Like in my graduate program, we were kind of trained to think about, we were told, don't just go into private practice. That's not big enough. You need to like make a difference in the world, which is a beautiful message. But, you know, I don't know that that helped me to clarify what I wanted that difference to be. And I have clients who also say like, I don't know if I want to take on these issues. That's not my passion. But, you know, usually you can find something that you're passionate about when it comes to your daily life and the people you care about and your community. Those are really important lessons. And Lindsay, do you have any money, wisdom, and advice based on your unique experience in the world that you haven't had a chance to share with us yet in the conversation that you'd like listeners to chew on? I guess the, the main thing I would say is that it's an opportunity to create meaning. And I mean, we all, you don't need money to create meaning, of course, but you know, that's hopefully really obvious, but I think that money can be a tool and it can be a tool to create meaning in lots of different ways. And that, I think that can be, you know, creating a beautiful home that, you know, that can be very meaningful. It can be helping someone who needs it, helping an organization, a community, but just, when we can live with meaning and money can just enhance that in some way, that that's, that's really how money can bring more joy instead of causing stress and unhappiness, which I think it can also do. Indeed. So Dr. Lindsay Hardy, what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? Oh, interesting question. My next money conversation. I finally figured out what to give my brother for his 40th birthday. <laughs> I don't think I want to share exactly what it is, but just I want to talk to him about what I want to give him because I'm excited. I'm excited to do that. Lindsay, thank you so much for the very thoughtful conversation today. It was such a pleasure to speak with you and to hear your insights and love everything that you said about the meaning of money and how people can use it as a tool to make not only our own lives better, but the lives of others in our world. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. It's been a lot of fun. Hello, Sandy here with a personal finance insight. During our conversation with Dr. Lindsay Hardy, she discussed entering into a prenuptial agreement with her now husband. In my experience, there's a lot of mystery and fear around prenups, so we're going to take a closer look at them today. Prenups are also called premarital agreements, and I'll be using the terms interchangeably in this discussion. As you are likely already aware, a premarital agreement is a contract two people enter into before they get married. The purpose of the contract is to allow the couple to override their state's marital property division laws in a manner that best suits them. Most people think prenups are something you create when you don't expect the marriage to last. We'd like to debunk this myth. A premarital agreement, especially if it's entered into with the right intention and time frame, can be a helpful tool to support a thriving relationship rather than an escape hatch for dismantling it. There are many situations when entering into a premarital agreement can be extremely helpful. These include relationships where there's a material difference between the couple's respective balance sheets and or earnings, or when one person is making a financial sacrifice like stepping back or down from a career 
in order to accommodate the marriage. Prenups can be used to protect a person's property from their soon-to-be spouse's debt and or liability exposure from their spouse's career or lifestyle. A prenup is also a great tool when one or both people were previously married and they want to keep some of their earnings and or assets earmarked for their own lineage. And in some cases, a premarital agreement may be a requirement for a person to be an eligible beneficiary of a trust they're named in or to receive an inheritance. Like most other personal financial matters, when it comes to prenups, there's no one-size-fits-all solution. Instead, each agreement is bespoke to the couple's needs and their specific circumstances. Determining and negotiating the terms of the agreement can take time, and it can also be emotionally challenging. To manage emotions, I find that it helps for the couple to be very clear up front about the joint values they want to guide them through the process and also about what goals they have for the agreement. These conversations can be difficult for the couple to navigate on their own, so leveraging the assistance of a financial advisor or money coach can be helpful. Once the couple is clear on their values and the purpose of the agreement, it's time to bring the family law attorneys into the conversation. Each partner needs to have their own legal counsel, and it's important to make sure both attorneys are qualified to practice in the area of family law and are in an objective position to advocate on behalf of their client. As part of this process, each person will need to disclose the details of their financial assets and liabilities, so it's often helpful to have had at least some big-picture conversations about the size of balance sheets in advance of the process to avoid big surprises. It's commonly known that couples can use premarital agreements to dictate how their property should be divided upon divorce. These agreements are also used to allow one or both people to waive economic rights of the marriage, including in certain cases spousal support. Prenups can also specify if and how separate property, like a residence that was obtained by one party before the wedding, will be used by the couple during the marriage. And prenups can specify responsibilities during the course of the marriage, like how certain expenses will be paid. Prenups are best executed a few months prior to the wedding, so advanced planning is necessary, especially for complex situations. If the premarital agreement is signed too close to the wedding date, it risks later being thrown out in the event of divorce if one spouse were to claim that they were forced to sign the agreement under duress in order to move forward with the scheduled wedding date. When considering a prenup, it's important to know that it's not the only way to protect separate property during marriage. And if you're not familiar with the term separate property, it refers to the assets a person has before they get married, plus any assets that are given to or inherited by them during the marriage. Some people skip the time and expense of executing a prenup and instead choose to segregate their separate property from their spouse during the marriage by keeping it in separate accounts. While easy in theory, it can be a challenge for some people to keep the separate property and its earnings separated from the marital assets. And if separate property gets mixed with marital property, it can be really complicated to divide the assets later on if a divorce occurs. Like other events, there are many personal financial considerations that arise when two people decide to get married. Joint values and goals, clear communication, and proper planning can help the couple make sure they're being fiscally responsible without diminishing the bliss of this very exciting time of life. For more personal finance insights, please listen to other Money Tales episodes and go to our blog Fathom at Asperian.com Fathom. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog Fathom, head on over to Asperian.com slash podcasts. 
Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.